Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Shane Boylan, Chief Veterinarian at the South Carolina Aquarium. Hi, Dr. Boylan. Thanks for being on Aquadox. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk with you and talk about some of the cases that you've dealt with. But before we get there, can you just share with our listeners how you got to where you are today? Sure. I went to vet school at NC State. The reason I went to NC State, I grew up in North Carolina. And when I was in high school, I went to one of the fairs and I saw Mr. T. He was a box turtle that had about 15 saclage screws that had been wired him together. And that was what the turtle team had done. And as a young idiot running around the creeks my entire childhood, all I did is catch animals, snakes and turtles and whatever else I could catch. And usually you run into something sick or injured. So not that a 13-year-old boy like me knew how to raise a baby bird or whatever, but you learned, you worked at rehab facilities. But I saw how they fixed it. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I worked as a vet tech for three or four years and then went to NC State for vet school. And my second or third day, I think we had to meet the faculty kind of thing. You had to introduce and say what you're going to do, right? And I'd already done cat dog medicine. So on day three, we were introducing the faculty and I just said, I, I really want to do things with scales and feathers. And this little tiny guy behind me gave me the thumbs up and that turned out to be Greg Lubart, who's been on your podcast. Uh, about his vacation he gets paid to do, which is awesome. I'm just saying that because I'm jealous. But I um, followed him around for four years. And when I graduated, I got a job doing Sioux Medicine straight out, which is really nice and rare. I've never knocked out a domestic felid. First animal I ever sedated was an African male lion, but I did elephants and primates. And after a couple of years, somebody said the job had opened up back on the East Coast. Uh, and I'm, again, I'm from the Carolinas and it was at the South Carolina Aquarium. She said, heck, so you come over here. And so I did. And so for 14 years, I've been doing sea turtle rescue for the state of South Carolina. I've been taking care of the animal collection for the South Carolina Aquarium. Wow. First animal that you sedated was a lion, not your traditional dog or cat. Amazing. Yep. And I opened up that drug cabinet and I found xylosine and ketamine and, and a bunch of other drugs I knew I wouldn't want to mess with. And I'm like, well, I hope this works because xylosine, and even in my day, was more of an older drug. But it worked out just fine. And it was a good learning opportunity. And I was my own quarantine keeper. So I had every new animal that came in for 30 to 60 days. It's best if you have these animals so you understand the limitations of the animal. And since particularly the reptiles and fish, you, if you don't understand a husbandry, you really can't correct the problem. Because the problem nine times out of 10 is something husbandry related that you have to identify. So it's very good to be the vet tech. I was basically a part-time zookeeper and full-time zoo veterinarian. And like sea turtles, you're not illegally allowed to have at your house. But, you know, I'd go out to the beach to pick them up with our DNR. You know, I did the feeding and cleaning for a number of years before we got big enough where I couldn't do that anymore. So it made a big difference in the medicine when I can understand what you can do with these species, what these species will allow. No, no, it's all good info. I'm curious, though, now that you've got more experience, what would you give a lion to sedate it? Well, I've done some interesting things. I've actually done some oral detomidine and ketamine in tigers and like mountain lions, and I could sedate them orally. So I could just do a hand injection or pull blood. Again, I don't do lions anymore, but I do mountain lions still. Ironically, river otters, mountain lions have done my whole career. And alpha twos like dexmedetomine and ketamine are a good combination. With cats, you got to be particularly careful. So you got to remember with an obligate carnivore, their livers don't have the robust detoxifying nature that say an omnivore, like a bear raccoon or dog has. But um, having said that, otters are obligate carnivores and midazolam and ketamine is the phenomenal combination. So if I were going to do a lion again, I would call a couple of friends who do more regularly and say, hey, you know, is it alpha two like dexmedetomine appropriate? Because I used to get away with xylosine and ketamine, but that's you know, 10, 15 years ago. So you're equating a lot of felids with otters. Are there a lot of similarities between the two? Yeah. So in vet school, they're going to tell you, you know, if you learn your cat, dog, sheep, ghost, horse, pig, you can apply that to zoo animals. 
And that's not true, but that's all you have to go on. So I came out of school and I had five elephants, right? And I went to all this many of the lectures as I could at the residence in NC State could. And I remember thinking, I'll never do elephants, so I don't need to worry about this because this is way over my head and way too complicated. And then right out of school, I'm like, what was I thinking? I now have five elephants. But we based their GI on horses because they're hind gut fermenters. It's the same technology I also apply to green sea turtles and gopher tortoises. And there's nothing in common with a gopher tortoise with a horse. But the concept of a lot of food passing undigested by the, you know, the foregut, going to the large intestine and having a microbial beer culture. I always call them the, the basically brew bass, the rumen and our artiodactyl, and in this case, a horse or a gopher tortoise or an elephant. And certain protozoa, fungi, and bacteria are literally breaking down the sales and the volatile fatty acids. The good and the bad news about this is it at least allows you to pick certain medications and therapies based on similar physiological concepts. You no, know, a cold-blooded gopher tortoise has nothing in common with, a, with an elephant. They might share some of the similar physiological properties of breaking down cellulose. And so you don't want to put a certain antibiotic in their gut because that might kill some of the gut flora. And then they would basically not digest anything. So all that basically means is I have never known what I'm doing at all, but I take what little I learned from school, a lot of which I read all the time when I always have journals and, and herpetological and fish articles nearby. And then you just make it up. And again, by having these animals and understanding them, you hope you do the best you can. And sometimes you don't do anything at all because you know you probably make it worse. We've talked a lot about that struggle on this podcast. And when you work with non-traditional species or honestly aquatic species in general, Sometimes the literature isn't there and you have to make it up and try new things as you go along. So I got a story for you. So we had some sea turtles. These are Kemp's Ridleys that were caught by hopper dredges. And we have a CT machine, so I'm big in the imaging and because it doesn't involve any pain. They just have to sit and hold still. So we get a CT and the lung is ruptured and the body's filled with air. So you've probably seen it in the movies where your lung pops, your chest fills up with air. For those of you guys who don't know pneumothoraxes. And every time you inhale, air goes through your lungs and into your chest. And that doesn't go out when you breathe out. That air fills up your chest and it compresses your lung and you suffocate yourself. So if you're old enough to remember MASH, you take a ballpoint pen and you like you can dab it in your side or in your throat and you can you know you can drain the air out that way. So we did that. We were tapping the air out of his coelom. Turtles don't have a, a two chambers. They don't have a, a chest, a thoracic, and an abdomen. They have one chamber called the coelom. But that hole in the lung doesn't heal, right? It's a big hole. And because air is moving through it, it doesn't want to seal. So I'm doing a CT at a friend of mine's veterinary clinic, Charleston Veterinary Referral Center. And he's a tech. He probably knows more than any veterinarian does. I'm like, man, how do you fix this stuff if you don't have any money? And surgically, turtles, they're just badly built, right? You can't get in there. So I was like, Mike, what would you do? And he goes, well, in the cases that people can't afford it or they're not stable enough, we would do a blood patch. So I look at him, I'm like, what the heck is a blood patch? And he goes, we just take the blood from the dog and we squirt it in the lung where it's wounded and we seal it with its own blood. And I'm looking at them like, I have been fixing ruptured swim bladders with suture and glue for like years and it's not working. I could just squirt their own blood in it, which is completely normal and safe and just pop a needle in there. I'm like, oh my God, you're a genius. So he gets me a paper and uh, we take this turtle named Glenn and I pull some blood from another turtle because Glenn didn't have any because the hopper direction crushed him and pull his blood out of him. And he's sedated for this. So he doesn't feel it. You can see where the lung bolt is on an x-ray and I pass this long spinal needle. And I move it forward and forward. And I can take the x-ray and see if I'm in the right area. And if I pull back on it and I get a lot of air, I'm either in the lung or in the bullet. You can't really tell, but I'm hoping with the x-rays and everything else, I'll figure it out. And then I pull some blood from Cherry, who's another Kemp's Ridley, with no anticoagulant. And I inject it into where the bullet is. And then I shake him around like an Etch-a-Sketch. And what I'm trying to do is get that blood to cover up that hole. If it's small enough, it's possible for that blood to hit it. And because it's ruptured and inflamed, the thrombocytes from Cherry's blood will clot to it and we'll get a clot. And it worked. The gas didn't reinflate. We followed him with CTs, healed that area because now it had a, its own blood on there. And that fibrinogen patch, that fibrin that's on there now, and the thrombocytes created a scaffolding. And then the cells, the epithelial lining of the lung landed on it. And he was fixed in one basically 20, 30 minute procedure when I could have tried multiple surgeries and I probably would have lost them to the pneumothorax or to some infection from surgical complications, but we turned them loose. So I tell you that story is because we had a Goliath grouper 
who's one of my favorites, and I'm going to name them Mel Brooks. I name all my animals. It's just easier. I don't remember their numbers. And it drives everybody crazy. But Mel is a goliath group, which is a rare species to have. He's 500 or 600 pounds. So if you want to talk about a cool fish, this thing will live 30, 40, 50 years. It'll be 500 pounds. I mean, they eat sharks. They're just as cool as they can get. And one day he was found floating upside down in his tank. Like the day previous, we had a scorpion fish disappear and the moray eel was acting odd. So we either think the moray eel and the goliath group are got into a fight, or what I think what actually happened is they were both trying to eat the scorpion fish and they were scavenging on him. He may have died naturally. But you got to remember, scorpion fish are venomous. So they have their dorsal spines contain the venom and their side, their pectoral spines are venomous. So what I think happened is Mel ate the scorpion fish and the scorpion fish did what all fish do right before they get consumed. They stick up their dorsal spines and gave him that poke. Probably went through the stomach and into the swim bladder. And so now his swim bladder, and for those of you guys who don't know, most marine fish are what are called physoclistus and they have a, an airbag a big lung, a pseudo lung, so they control their buoyancy. And physoclistus fish use their blood to secrete oxygen or other gases into it to make it bigger so they're a little more buoyant. And they can use that same kind of system of blood vessels called a retmorable to absorb that gas so they can go deeper. And the problem is you stick a hole in that thing and it's got a rent, just like the sea turtle I mentioned had a hole in his lung from a hopper dredge, that gas will leak out. So he'll try to pump it up again and then the gas will leak out. And there's no mechanism where the body recognizes, oh, it's just leaking into my sealum. I need to stop this. So he's really distended. He's filled with air and he's upside down. And that's not, fish don't like to be upside down floating when all the other fish can make fun of you. And so the staff wanted to do conservative therapy. So we put him on pain meds, some hydromorphone and some antibiotics, and we would pull the air out of his ceiling. And I took a bunch of radiographs and sent it to all my friends. And if I can make one interesting thing about being aquatic medicine is, is I think it's a really good community. Like this week alone, two of your previous podcasts, uh, Dr. Greg Lubart and Jesse Sanders were asking me about a tang or a squirrelfish respectively. So we all chit chat on phones and, and listservs like, hey, have you done this? Have you tried this? Because there's very little written up and most of it's like a case of two or three. So no one will let you publish it anyway. But even if it works or doesn't work, it's good data. So I've got a Goliath grouper. It's floating on the surface. It's a big bag of gas. I shoot at x-rays and everyone says it looks normal. And I'm like, well, that sucks. So I'm going to ignore my friend's advice in this one scenario, which is the only time I'm glad I ignored my friend's advice. And I said, I think he's got a ruptured swim bladder. I start tapping the gas. He sinks to the bottom, which is a terrible thing. When certain fish rest on the bottom, their skin gets ulcerated. So now we do this game of tapping just enough air to make them less positively buoyant, but we want them negatively buoyant. This goes on for several weeks. And finally, he's not getting any better. His skin's getting ulcerated. He hasn't eaten unless we force fed him. And I can't keep him on morphine and, and amicacin for the rest of his life. So the staff go, all right, Frankenstein, what do you want to do? And I'm like, oh, I got a good idea. A blood patch. So at this point, like, go for it. Conservative stuff's not working. So it took two or three times, but I would pull blood out of Mel's tail. And with an x-ray machine, I'd pop the needle in a swim bladder and I would drain his sealum of gas. And I could take an x-ray and see the swim bladder. It had a little gas left and I squirt some blood in there and I shake him like an Etch-a-Sketch gently, but I kind of rock him to make sure that blood goes everywhere. And on the third try, he woke up and he didn't sink on the bottom and he didn't float the next day. The next day after that, he didn't float. And he's never floated since abnormally. And he's been on display for five or six years. And I fixed him in 10 minutes when we spent six weeks of the more conservative therapy, did nothing for him. Uh, he doesn't hate me, which is kind of nice. Most of my patients after a while remember me and he will, he does remember me. Um, and he's now three times bigger. And it was a little of his own blood that fixed his ruptured swim bladder. So that's stealing from a cat dog, from a technician who read, did a better job of studying my medicine than I did. Like he knew that technique. He told it to me. I put it into a Kemp Ridley sea turtle that a hopper dredge tried to kill. And then I put it into a Goliath grouper. And it worked perfectly. So how cool is that? I'm sitting here with my mouth open thinking that's the coolest story I've heard in weeks. That's amazing. So have you been able to apply that then to other animals in your collection? 
so we collect our own fish at the South Carolina Aquarium. And a lot of them will come up from depth. So we've done several more blood patches and they've worked successfully. I share the technique as much as I can. It's not my technique, right? Humans do it all the time. In the military, if you get shot in the lung, your buddy will pop an IV line in himself and he'll pour his own blood into your chest just to get it to, to coagulate, right? This has been going on forever. I just was too dumb to know it until, until I found it. I stuck it in the fish. So I shared this technique with all my friends because again, it's a community. Uh, Lydia Staggs at SeaWorld did it for manatee and it worked. So if you've got an air-filled chamber that's leaking, you know, use the animal's own blood because that's what it's designed to do. Those thrombocytes are there to form a clot. The fibrinogen is designed to you know, convert into fibrin and form a clot. So I don't know why I was using tissue glue and trying surgically to reach in there. The animal knows how to do this. I just have to um, put everything in the right location. And that's what a lot of medicine is. I do a lot of sea turtle rehab. I put them on antibiotics. You know, I'll, I'll correct the wounds. I'll change the salinity. I'll add some oxygen in the water to speed up. But what I do is I just provide an optimal environment and try to control any opportunistic infections. The turtles do the majority of the work. So if you get really clean water and really good food, you can really bring a lot back. What else have we done crazy recently? Uh, we've done myelograms. Dr. Burke Holder down in Florida, she taught me how to do anesthesia, spinal anesthesia in sea turtles by injecting, say, lidocaine on the tail, and that'll numb the back end of the turtle so you can do a surgery. So I was like, well, if I can do that, I can inject contrast. And so we have a CT machine, so now we're doing a lot of myelograms. And so we're able to evaluate whether, and we get a lot of boat strikes, you know, how intact is the cord, but we're trying to be as forward thinking and, and try anything as long as it's you know, reasonable. Wildlife shows up on our coast. It's avoided every hurricane, boat, and shark, and then it washes up on the beach. We need to do the best that we can to bring it back. Wow. Those are such fabulous stories. I got one more cool story for you from trying something. So you remember in the news in California, the wildfires, you heard about fish skin being used to wrap up bear, bear paws or, or mountain lion paws. Well, the process is under patent review, so they won't tell you what's going on or how to do it. So we've been playing around with some fish skin. I work in an aquarium. I can get fish skin. And as I'm doing all this research, it turns out there's a company in Iceland who makes sterile fish skin. So they take the skin probably off an aquaculture. They strip off all the soft tissue and they just retain the collagen protein. So like we always do because we're poor in a small aquarium, we call and plead to so say, would you mind sending us a sample? Because we have a sea turtle that needs it. Of course, Kerasis is great. They're like, oh, of course. So we've used it in a couple cases and it worked really well. But my favorite is a recent one. We get this little green sea turtle who's missing one rear flipper. And the other one is hanging on by just a piece of skin. So for those of you guys who don't know, sea turtles use their back leg to dig nests. And the way the laws are written, if they're missing both back flippers, they're no longer releasable. Because if it is female, she's just going to come on the land and she can wiggle her tail, but that's not going to work for her. And she can't drop a nest. I'll be honest with you, there are turtles like this who make do with nubs and, and do do well missing both her flippers. But the way the law is written, I couldn't do anything about it. So I've got a flipper that's hanging on by a piece of skin and your, your veterinary instinct is to just take scissors and just chop it off and be done with it. But I know I can't do that. So traditionally what you do, which seems counterintuitive, you take the, the flipper, which is at its knee joint, right? We call it the stifle and you rough up the healed tissue. So it's got bloody ends and a suture them back together. And you hope that open tissue, the blood vessels will migrate and you'll get a repair. So I did that two or three times and it didn't work. And it usually doesn't, but that's what they tell you in school. So and it's still hanging on by a piece of skin and it's really healing up. So it's never going to want to come back together again. So I'm running out of ideas and I don't want to make a non-releasable sea turtle. I mean, it's, it's okay to have one in captivity, but I want to fix this. And I'm dumb enough to keep trying anything. So we had some of this leftover fish patch material, which we've used before. And I'm like, you know what, what's it going to hurt to just put that fish collagen in between and then suture it up just like I did the last two or three times. Can't hurt, right? I've tried this multiple times and it probably won't work because the wounds are getting less and less likely to heal. So I rough up the edges. I suture in the fish collagen patch. I suture up the leg and it worked like a charm. I mean, it completely sealed up. The flipper works, you know, nothing, nothing. And then all of a sudden one piece of fish collagen patch and it works great. So 
I had used it in another green seed turtle that had an infected joint would never heal and it would stay open. And so finally I, I did these fish collagen patch and it healed up in like two weeks or three weeks, which is amazing. So now I've used it twice in seed turtles. And again, these are cases that were not healing up on their own. So I had to try something different and they both work miraculously for those two cases. I've used it in fish and it never works. Ironically, it's from fish, but I can't use it, make it work in fish. Wow. First off, I didn't even know that they were using that to help the bears out in California, but applying it to a sea turtle. That's so cool. It's, I mean, it's really there for diabetic patients who, because of the, the, the sugar crystals, can't heal the cubital ulcers on their feet. And what it does is if you're going to build a house, you already have a pre-laid foundation and structure. So that collagen allows those cells to migrate in and they already have a foundation and a frame. So basically you just got to put a plumbing, electrical work and drywall. So blood vessels, nerves, and some soft tissue when you're ready to go. So it starts that process off far more quickly. And that collagen stays in there, according to the company. It never goes away. It gets used. Collagen from a fish to a sea turtle, to a human, to a horse, it's all the same thing. That protein has been modified. So we all use it really well, at least among the vertebrates. So it's a, it's a great trick uh, technique. So I've been really, really pleased at how well it's worked for us, except in the fish. And that's the most frustrating part. So do you make your own now or do you still use that other company? After that thing works like magic, whatever we do, we get the money, we get, we order from Kerasys because it works so well. I played with making my own, but it's not anywhere close to the original product. So I know it works. It'll save the animal a lot of failed attempts. So I'll kiss some heinies or hug some people or take some buddy for a tour, whatever it takes. But for a couple hundred bucks, it can save a life. Wow. What an incredible story. Now, I know you also work with the Turtle Survival Alliance. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So outside of like doing traditional aquarium medicine, which is always a lot of fun, I get to work with a lot of different partners and the Turtle Survival Alliance. They're an awesome organization that tries to save endangered turtles. When I say endangered, I mean, CITES one listed. So in the world, they're endangered. If you can put anything on the endangered species list in the United States, that doesn't mean they're going to save it in China or Nepal or Thailand. I mean, it's, it's a law that's great, but American law doesn't apply anywhere. So the Turtle Survival Alliance is really good at focusing in Southeast Asia, Thailand, China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, that area, where these species either purchased as pets or consumed in, in medicine or food. And so an hour north of here, we have a 500, 600 turtles that we work on. And this is one of those stories. So in 2001, when I was a vet student, Greg Lubart says there's a confiscation of turtles and they confiscated several thousand turtles in Hong Kong that were supposed to go to the Chinese food markets. So Greg brought down students. So we spent two or three days working on all these turtles. Anyway, 20 years later, I'm still working with TSA. So for my first year in vet school, I'm still working with TSA. And because they're, they're focused in South Carolina, where I work, I've been working with them. And we have this turtle. And this is a turtle that lives in Burma. It's got long legs and can climb up steep slopes and lives in the montane areas. It's really an ancient kind of tortoise. And the pictures are just nasty. And it made a horrible noise. So it looks at me and it goes... <laughs> And it just snot bubbles just come pouring out of its nose. So because again, it's a small world and you work with, you really cherish your friends. I immediately say, you know, I contact my friends, uh, Sean Perry, Trey Clark and, and Charlie Ennis. And I'm like, all right, who's worked with the species? And, and, you know, what have you seen with this? You need to do the standard workup. I'm going to take some x-rays. I'm going to culture this thing. We're not going to run blood work because there's no normals. No one's ever looked at these animals. Who knows what normal is? But we're going to at least to figure out what's growing in its in the mucus. Radiographically, it's easy to test because you just got to hold still. And, you know, and so Charlie Ennis, of course, because he's done more of this than any. So Charlie goes, did you not read my abstract from like 97 on the species? And so I didn't find it. So I'm an idiot. So he sends it to me. So this turtle, who we named Ruxpin, was probably part of a group of animals imported into the New England area. And we're going to be sold as food or whatever. And they were bought by a turtle guy. They all got sick. It took him to Charlie Ennis, who's the most wonderful veterinarian at the New England Aquarium. Love Charlie Ennis. And he worked these guys up. He did what he could for what he gentleman could afford to do. And he didn't really get a lot of follow-up. Well, it turns out these animals from New England went up to the Riverbank Zoo in Columbia, South Carolina, over to the Turtle Survival Alliance in, in the Charleston area, South Carolina. And this is like 15 or 20 years later. And now I'm working on the same turtle that Charlie saw 10 or 15 years ago, working with the same organization that started 20 years ago. 
So this turtle has kind of followed my life surreptitiously. And Charlie goes, yeah, we did figure it out. Good luck. So anyway, we did some cultures. We did figure out what it was sensitive to. We were able to knock it back. And the interesting thing about Ruxpin is he looks exterior relatively normal, but he's got a crack in his shell. What's fun about working with some of these animals is they've been pulled out of the wild as adults. So, and because of the longevity, they could live 50 years, 100 years, we don't know. This guy may have seen Shanghai Shack, like World War II. I mean, he may have seen the, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. We don't know what country he came from. He may have fought in World War two for all we know, but he had this weird defect. He had the shell on the outside looked relatively normal, but there was a big dead space. So there was healthy shell, big airspace, and then healthy shell on top of it. And his lung was compressed. And so Chris Hagen, who's a wealth of information at the Turtle Survival Alliance, he goes, well, looks like an elephant stepped on him, right? And I laugh. I'm like, yeah, probably could be. And so, you know, we're, we're working him up. We're getting the turtle better. He's getting back to eating. The antibiotics are working after we switched the right antibiotic. And then here's another crazy person, a guy named Steve Platt. He's the last like field biologist. He lives in Southeast Asia. He walks around Burma just tracking turtles. He has seen and done everything. Almost all the papers out of Southeast Asia are because Steve Platt takes a sweet tea and walks around Southeast Asia and finds stuff that no one even knows still exists. So I send this radiograph to Steve because he's the most amazing herpetologist. And I'm like, look at this weird bone thing, right? And I know it's not normal. We've got one side of that lung's normal. We have a couple of other species. I x-rayed them. They're all normal. I'm like, wow, it's just weird. And Steve Platt goes, huh. Looks like an elephant stepped on him. <laughs> so between Chris Hagen and Steve Platt, I'm like, well, that's that's gospel truth because it was all spontaneous. So to this day, Ruxpin's doing well. He hasn't had too many returns to the bubbles. So we love this turtle. So every time I go in there to work every weeks, I like to just, I check on him for no reason other than to say hi. He comes right up to you. And that animal has some stories because he could be 90 years old. He may have come over in this country when he's 20 or 40. He's been to as many states as I've been. And I've moved, you know, 20, 30 times in my lifetime. So what a cool animal that he's got to visit all these veterinarians and all these crazy herpetologists and seen all these places. And he's still with us and he's still teaching us this a lot. Maybe when I'm gone, he might still be here. And he'll be like all those Darwin collected, you know, Galapagos. We maybe have Lonesome George still telling us stories. And you might be treating Lonesome George, you know, at some point and you go to the Galapagos and you'll be down there looking at tortoises that Darwin got the pet on the head in 1859 or 58 or whatever it was. That's awesome. And since I know you're such a great mentor and I absolutely loved spending time with you at Aquavet this summer, any nuggets of wisdom that you can share with our student listeners? We take a lot of students and we try to give advice. I was one of those rare students that got a job full-time zoo medicine straight out of school. People have done that, just not many. Absolutely, there's nothing wrong with going straight into a job like that. If you want to do an internship and residency, that's absolutely fine. It's a good way to learn. But I would just say is keep your options open and know yourself. It took me a while to get into vet school. It took me three tries because I'm stupid. So um, by the time I got out of there, I was a vet tech. I was older. I knew what I did and did not know. And I was fine saying like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, anybody got any other ideas? So it didn't really need that extra bit of time, but know yourself and uh, you don't have to always do the prescribed route. But I think most of being a good clinician is understanding your species. So having these animals or having experience with these animals, whether you have them on your own or you work with them every day and knowing that you don't know everything and knowing that knowing the animal species, what they're capable of, what they'll tolerate is more important than you can memorize every pharmacokinetic data on a drug, but you can't inject that animal four times a day. That giraffe's not gonna allow it. That tortoise is not gonna do well, even if you can do it. That fish is certainly not gonna do well and stresses it out. So I have a lot of fish. I love fish. I go fishing, which is good and bad. But by being in the environment and studying them, you really get to understand what, what it is that makes me unique. And then I try to think from their perspective. The last thing I'll say, like I deal with ectotherms, my favorite focus. As a homeotherm, you know, we have a regulator on body temperature. So when it's cold outside, we put on a coat, but it really, we could be fine even at 30 degrees for you know, a couple of hours. A five degree temperature difference on a fish or a turtle is significant. It shuts down their physiology. So remember every change in salinity for a fish, every degree in a fish or a reptile, it's makes a big difference. 
difference. But that's also good because you can modify it. So we change temperature to fight off certain viruses. I modify the salinity for wound healing. Sea turtles live at 34 PPT, but I drop the salinity. It's still enough salt for them to process their salt glands, but it's it's not so saline that it reduces the healing factor. So, and I even drive oxygen into the water. So we do this with fish a lot. So when that with sea turtles, I'll supersaturate with oxygen. So I'll make a hyperbaric chamber basically in their own water to speed wound recovery because turtles do everything slower than mammals. And it takes four weeks for this to heal or six weeks to heal. But if you can knock off a week or two weeks or a couple of days, it's better for that animal. So think outside the box. This is what's fun about this field. And for students is go to AquaVet. Absolutely go to AquaVet. I, I loved it. I went to AquaVet 1 and 2 or MarVet or any of those other programs. If you don't get the job you want right away, just to keep applying. And, uh, and it's okay if you don't get in the job full time. Um, we don't make any money. You can tell this that uh, all our vet, vet students that do cat dog are making more money their first year out of school, a lot more money than I'm making after almost 20 years of being in aquatic medicine full time. So if you want to do it part time and you want to work with a facility like a science center, that's the best way of doing it because you have all some money, you have a nice home life and you get to work with these species. I don't care if it's a possum or a goldfish. I do some koi work on the side. That's a great way to get started is helping some people with koi particularly if you're good with water quality. And my last plug, I guess, for students is no water quality. I am tired of veterinarians, even some of my colleagues who do not like microbiology, necropsy, and water quality. Fish work is a lot of microbiology. We do a lot of our own, all water quality. And again, a lot of imaging, and I like x-rays and CTs and MRIs and things, but it's a lot of non-invasive diagnostics. Or when they die, I x-ray every fish that dies at our aquarium, and I CT most of them. And then I practice my ultrasound on these guys. So when something dies, you make the best use of that necropsy to learn your clinical techniques and learn why the animal died. So learn all about dissolved gases, learn all about Edward Ciella. AquaVet will do that. You can get all those books. There's so much really good information out there, but I think it's not hard to get involved, but please know your water quality. And please, when something dies, don't you and walk away. That's your opportunity to practice ultrasound and radiography and necropsy and, and learn the difference between a head and tail kidney and physoclysis and physostomus. And you can learn a lot really quickly because fish are not mammals. It's going to take a long time for you to get really familiar with them. Cetaceans are cheats. You know, basically sea lions are just wet dogs and cetaceans are just screwed up cows and penguins are just aspergillosis wrapped up in a tuxedo. So those guys, you can catch up pretty quick, but fish are really awesome. You just can't take a cat dog medicine applied to a fish. So you got to be a little more out of the box thinking. So be honest with yourself. You don't know what you're doing. You're just trying to do the best that you can and share your information with your friends and have a beer or a glass of water and talk for cases. And hopefully you'll do more good than you will harm. Really, truly great advice. Some really, really amazing stories. I'm sure everyone listening was on the edge of their seats the entire time. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And a quick note, as we close out this episode and season one of Aquadox, I want to thank you all so much for your incredible support this past year. I started this podcast because I wanted to learn more about aquatic medicine, and it's now become so much more than that. Thank you to all of my incredible guests for taking the time to talk with me, and to all of you for tuning in and listening each week. I couldn't do this without all of you. We'll be taking a short summer vacation to get things ready for season two, so keep your eyes on our social media pages for the launch later this summer. In the meantime, I'd encourage you to re-listen to your favorite episodes or catch up on the ones you've missed. And please, if you have a moment, leave some reviews on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to educate more people about aquatic medicine. Thanks again, everyone, for your support. I'm super excited to see you back in a few weeks for season two of Aquadox.